This evening we come to the next section um, in our study in Mark, and we're going to take a few verses, verses 18 to 22. As we mentioned last week, these, this section kind of deals with controversy. We dealt with the first two uh, sections of that, and this evening we're going to deal with some controversy over fasting. And that was the original uh, title that I had thought of for this message, but instead of titled this, From Feasting to Fasting, in order to tie it to last week's sermon, where Jesus was feasting um, and celebrating in the house of Levi with the tax collectors, with the sinners. Um, and also want to um, focus this evening, I know it seems inappropriate to deal with the t- subject of fasting on the, su- the night that we have the... Uh, the, the supper of the year, the chili cook-off, but yet this is where the Lord has us, not in any way to heap guilt upon you. It's a time of, of celebration for us as a church. So, um, but hopefully the Lord will teach us from His Word this evening. So before we read this, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Lord God, Your Word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path, and we ask, Lord God, that You by your Holy Spirit, would illuminate your word to us. Lord, it is quick and powerful, and may it, may it work in us according to your will, Lord, we ask. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts tonight would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Mark two eighteen. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this evening in his holy and inerrant word. What was the happiest day of your life? I trust if you're a believer, and I know not every one of us can point to a point in time, a day and a time that that we came to faith, that the Lord opened our eyes to our need for Him, but certainly that should be um, the time that's the happiest in our life. But outside of that, I hope if you're married that you would say your wedding day. I hope that would be the happiest day of your life. In our culture, few days compare to the wedding day in terms of anticipation and preparation and expense and sometimes controversy and challenges, but it is meant to be, and we think of it as such, as a joyous day, and it is. It's a day of celebration. In our our passage this evening, Jesus draws upon that imagery to help us understand the joy of his kingdom. In our message last week, as we said earlier, he was celebrating. He was celebrating not a wedding, but a feast in the home of Levi. And he was celebrating with sinners. He was celebrating with tax collectors of all people. The, the, really the outcast of society. And he reminded them that, 
the, his accusers, those that were, that were wondering why he was doing that, he reminded them that it was for the sick and for the sinner that he came. And here tonight we see conflict as questions come to Jesus surrounding this concept of fasting. And I've organized this message around two hopefully memorable points, a time for feasting and a time for fasting. The text begins by telling us that the disciples of John and the the Pharisees, the, the disciples of the Pharisees, were fasting. Fasting was not uncommon in that day. In fact, the Pharisee in Luke 18, if you remember, where Jesus talked about the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee prayed, and he reminded God arrogantly that he fasted twice a week. John's disciples, um, it's not surprising that they would fast either. Um, John's message was one of repentance. John's life and, and his appearance just seemed to exude self-deprivation, um, self-denial. And he was a, a minimalist in dress and in diet. And even though John was likely in prison at this time, his disciples would, you know, it seems reasonable that they would continue in his ways and his message. Perhaps they were fasting in in protest of his unjust imprisonment and in appeal to God to see him released. And over against the fact that we have these two prominent religious groups that were fasting, this question comes to Jesus, hey, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Look at over here. At these guys, they're fasting, and but your disciples don't. Certainly, we could hear a hint of condescension here and, and criticism. The questioner asks about Jesus' disciples, but certainly they are implying, implicating Jesus at the same time as the leader of those disciples. And I don't know about you, but I two have been guilty of kind of wondering why Jesus' disciples didn't fast. Now, we are all products of our upbringing, and I grew up thinking and being taught that fasting was something that truly spiritual people did. Um, It's something that increases the intensity and the effectiveness of your prayers, and it does. And so I thought, well, why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? It seems like something that followers of Jesus should want to do. But actually, the Mosaic Law only proclaimed one day as a fast. It was the Day of Atonement. We read about it in Leviticus 16. And on the Day of of Atonement, these first century Jews knew that in the Mosaic Law, that was what they were commanded to do. We see other fasts proclaimed in in the period after the exile. We think of Esther and how she proclaimed a fast to um, beg God to intervene for the protection of the, of the Jews when they were facing, basically facing extinction. And then the Feast of Purim was established following that, and a fast was established as part of that. But there's no place in Scripture that commands a weekly fast, let alone twice a week, as the Pharisees likely did. But remember, the Pharisees were known for adding to God's law. They wanted to protect God's law, which was here, so they built a fence out here. And they did things out here to make them, in their minds at least, to make them sure that they didn't break God's law that was well inside of that fence. But I wonder how we might add to God's law in efforts to make ourselves look better, in efforts to make ourselves feel like we're measuring up. How are we trusting in some outward form of religion to appear righteous? 
But Jesus' answer to his questioners on this day was not based upon the law. His disciples weren't breaking any Old Testament law. We know Christ perfectly kept the law. And instead, Jesus answers this question with a word picture. He says in verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, you don't go to a wedding to expect to fast. You go to celebrate. That's what a wedding is. The time that the guests spend with the bridegroom is a celebration. Jesus is saying that he's the bridegroom, and with his arrival comes a time of celebration. One of the reasons that that people would fast in those days is to express sorrow over sin or a deep longing. And and so fasting was associated in the minds of of the first century Jew with with that idea of sorrow and longing and yearning. But Jesus wants to portray to them and to us that the time of longing has ended. He is here. He is the fulfillment of that longing. So it was not a time for fasting. It was a time for feasting. It was a time for celebration. The Messiah had come, just as the Old Testament prophets had said. And his claim in this word picture should have helped his followers see who he was. See, Yahweh in the Old Testament, God in the Old Testament portrayed himself as the bridegroom. Remember in Hosea, it said, Hosea 2 says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Jesus is drawing on that and and similar language in other places in Scripture, saying that he is the bridegroom of, of his people, and he is the same Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jesus is God, and he is here, and he is among them, and it is a time for feasting. It is not a time for fasting for his disciples. The coming of the Messiah is so glorious and thrilling and astonishing that it's neither the time or place to fast. It's a time to allow his followers to revel in the moment, to, to, to kind of let the idea of the coming of the kingdom sink into them and realize what a glorious moment that it is. Of course, <clears throat> Jesus' message of the kingdom was very different from the message and the fasting of the Pharisees. They fasted as part of that hedge that they put around the law, as we said. They sought God's favor by strict adherence to the law. And they took great pride in their fasting and their supposed ability to keep the law, at least the letter thereof. Jesus' message, on the other hand, was one of faith and repentance and humility and trust, not in yourself, but trust in Christ and what he was going to do. His message was one of grace. The gospel says, you can't be good enough. But look, if you repent and believe, you can have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, reckoned, reckoned to you, credited to your account. This is something radically new and something worth celebrating. And then Jesus uses two analogies to further explain what he's saying and to show the radical newness of his kingdom. He says in verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. The unshrunk cloth was one that had not yet been processed by the fuller. It hadn't been treated and and pre-shrunk, if you will. Of course, if you... If, if the patch shrinks, then the, the, the worn garment around it would tear, thus defeating the purpose of the patch. 
And then he goes on in the next verse, telling them something that most of them would likely know, that you don't put new wine into old wineskins. New, unfermented wine belongs in new wineskins. Old, <clears throat> new leather can stretch and even breathe a little. Old leather, as you likely know, becomes old and brittle. New wine emits gases as it ferments, it expands, and if it's placed into old, brittle wineskins, the skins would burst and the wine would be lost. And in both of these illustrations, Jesus is saying that the old is incompatible with the new. He says, this is something different. This is something completely new, and you need to understand the radical newness of my kingdom. It cannot fit with the structures of the old ways of Judaism. The coming of the kingdom was not just a renewal of the old covenant, as the Old Testament prophets would say, and, and, and try to pull God's people back to the covenant. But he was saying, this is the new covenant that Jeremiah promised in Jeremiah 31. For people to enter Christ's new kingdom and new covenant, they had to realize that they could not come to him on the same basis as the fathers did under the old covenant. The new kingdom would be marked by his presence, by faith in Christ, his indwelling of believers, union with Christ, and most of all, his righteousness imputed to those who follow him, those who repent and believe. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's a time of rejoicing, especially for these new followers of Jesus. This time that Christ was upon the earth with his disciples was not a time for fasting, but one of rejoicing. But then he also says, there is coming a time for fasting. A time for fasting. He says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Fasting would be appropriate in that day. But when is that time? He said, it's when he is taken from them. It's interesting, it's in fact more than interesting, that in Isaiah 53 he uses similar language. He says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? We know that message is is a a prophecy of Christ's suffering. And, And when Christ was led away and crucified, the bridegroom was taken from them on that awful yet God-ordained night when he was led away as a common criminal, forsaken by his followers, given an unfair trial, and faced the wrath of his Father as he bore our sins upon the cross. He died. Of course, we know he didn't stay dead. He rose the third day, ascended into heaven, and he is not with us. He said he would send the Comforter, and we enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit that is with us. And he told his followers in John 14 that he was going away, but he would not leave them as orphans. He would send his comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with them. But we should long for Christ, saints of God. We should long to see him. We should look forward with eager anticipation for that day when we will see him face to face. I received a a rather strange letter in the mail yesterday. Perhaps several of you got it as well. It was from R.C. Sproul. As you know, Dr. Sproul died shortly before Christmas, and he had begun this letter several years ago to be sent to his followers and supporters following his death. And I was moved as I read his words that he had written in anticipation of the day that he would die. 
when he would see his Savior face to face. And he wrote as one who is as he is now, currently with Christ. And he said this, Even now, my vocabulary is too impoverished to describe the glory of my present state. It is joy unspeakable. Not only do I enjoy the blessed presence of Jesus, but I am also surrounded by the saints who were with me before, who were here before me. The vast multitude, the vast multitude of them enjoy a far greater reward than I. But I notice that no one is jealous of anyone else's status. Here there is no envy, jealousy, or covetousness. In fact, there is no sin at all, he said. What a blessed thought to be in the physical presence of our Savior. And we should long for that day. The Apostle Paul certainly longed for it. He wrote in Philippians 1 and said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary. In other words, given the choice, he would rather die and be with Jesus. But for the sake of the, of the ministry, he resigns himself to stay. Fasting is a means of deeper fellowship with our Savior, who we long to see. In various texts, Scripture seems to assume that the followers of Jesus would fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with many different things, but three of the things he deals with, of praying and giving and fasting, he seems to just treat as though it's expected. He says, when you pray, pray like this. When you give, this is how you should give. And when you fast, this is how you should fast. He said, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Both in Matthew 6 and here in Mark 2, there seems to be an expectation that, that believers, that followers of Christ, will fast. Now that the bridegroom has gone away, we should fast. We long to see him, and the time for fasting is now. Fasting, in a sense, John Piper has said that it is homesickness for Christ. And so that, this, this text this morning, or this evening, seems to say that. He says, when I go away, then they will fast. I haven't really defined fasting, but for our purposes this evening, it, it, it is, as I think most of us understanding, it is the setting aside of food for a period of time for seeking God. Going without food for spiritual reasons. There could be other types of fasts where you fasts where you set aside some other thing. But typically in Scripture, it's talking in those terms of, of putting aside food. When Jesus was led into the wilderness, he fasted and, of course, afterward was hungry because he had abstained from food. We see that, that fasting was part of the work of the early church. We see that, that before Paul and Barnabas were sent out, they fasted in, in before they commissioned and sent them out. They fasted as they were um, appointing elders in the early church. Jesus fasted. The early church leaders fasted. And we would do well to learn from them. I know that some people, many people perhaps, have medical reasons that would prevent them from fasting. But for most of us, we should consider how this spiritual dis discipline could help to elevate and intensify our prayers. 
As we said, this can and should be a longing for Christ, a homesickness to be with Jesus. But what does this new longing do for us? John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God, states that homesickness for God should be intense enough to lessen our physical desire for food. But there's another side of it that where he points out, and I think this would resonate with most of us, I know it certainly does with me, that sometimes our homesickness for God is deadened by our desires, our appetites for the things of this earth. It's then that we need to fast. We need to fast in order that the impediments of the world are are stripped away from us. Fasting battles the fleshly desires that work against this homesickness for God. When something good and pleasant is taken from us, it helps us see where our true satisfaction rests. Are we content with God and His provision? Is Christ enough for us? Are you at rest with Him? And as you think about fasting, think about it in terms of depriving yourself of something upon this earth in order to better appreciate things of eternal value. This is not to say that you cannot be holy unless you fast. Donald Whitney points out in his book on spiritual disciplines that fasting is not to be a legalistic routine. It's a privilege and an opportunity to seek God's face, seek God's grace that is open to us as often as we desire. However, you know, for most of us, I think fasting is something so new and strange that we almost never do it. And it's some, but it's something that is entire biblically biblical to do, at least occasionally. Benefits to this could be to deepen humility. Ezra proclaimed a fast for the purpose of humbling himself. Fasting can deepen a hunger for God to work. It can add to our repentance, aid our repentance, and help to strip away the love of the world that we find so often in our heart. It can help us to overcome temptation and help us to dedicate ourselves to God. Fasting strengthens and intensifies our prayers and feeds our faith. And it can help to build our earnestness and our zeal. Wesley Duell, in his book, Mighty Prevailing Prayer, said, Fasting prayer prepares your heart to prevail more powerfully, believe more trustingly, and hold on perseveringly until Christ's will visibly triumphs. I don't want anybody, however, to think that that fasting in any way manipulates God. Just like prayer, it is something that God uses in the accomplishment of His will. And this is a great mystery to me. When I think about prayer, I fully believe in God's sovereignty. Our God is in the heavens and He has done whatsoever He has pleased. However, our sovereign God in His grace and mercy, has chosen to work through the prayers of His people. Isn't that amazing to think about? That God, the sovereign King of the universe, uses our prayers in the accomplishment of His sovereign will. And fasting is something that is part of that and can be used to intensify those prayers. Fasting, as we said, is a longing. It's, and it's part of our existence here upon earth between the first and the second comings of Christ. He came in our text. He introduced his kingdom upon the earth, but he has gone away. And the fasting, though, that that we can enjoy as believers today is different from what the Pharisees had. It's different from what they did. 
They fasted without knowing the glorious truth of Christ's accomplished work that we now know. But now Christ has come. He has established his kingdom. So really our existence here between the two, between the already the establishment of his kingdom, and his kingdom is here. His kingdom is among us. But yet it's not fully completed. And so really we have kind of a mix of feasting and fasting. We can feast and celebrate the work that Christ has done on our behalf, and yet fasting is entirely appropriate as well, as we sometimes sorrow over our own sin, the indwelling sin among us. And fasting can help us to to mortify that sin by God's grace and by His Holy Spirit. But we live in a time where we both feast and we fast, But we can be joyful knowing that what Christ has started in us, he will complete. And we can say with John, even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, when I am hungry, whether I'm fasting or not, I am encouraged when I anticipate a forthcoming meal. And if you're hungry like you might be this evening, you can look forward to... The, the feast that John talks about in Revelation 19 of that day when the bride is ready and Christ the bridegroom receives his bride, the church. In that day, we'll be in the presence of the bridegroom forever. We will be feasting and rejoicing forever. Now we can and hopefully are and should be homesick for Christ. We fast as we desire him and desire to see his kingdom come and his will done in us and in the world around us. But we can rejoice knowing that there is a time of eternal rejoicing in his presence when the bridegroom returns. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you that your kingdom has come and we look forward to the full consummation of your work upon this earth, Lord God. We look forward to the day when we can be in Christ's presence forever. And Lord, while we're here upon this earth, enjoying a time of feasting, celebrating what you have done and are doing within us, and yet sorrowful, Lord, of the sin that remains in us and sins that are against us at times and and the sorrow of our trials, Lord, we ask that you would give us grace. And Lord, deepen our faith and deepen our walk with you and deepen our prayer time, Lord God, we ask. And give us grace to use this opportunity, this spiritual discipline of fasting, that our prayers might be intensified, that the love of the world would decrease within us and that we would see Christ in his glory, see him better every day, Lord, we ask. Bless us, Lord, we ask, we pray, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.